pray together once again. Father, thank you again for our time today. Thank you for the joy of proclaiming these truths back to you. It is you, God, in whom we believe, in whom we trust. It is in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we put our faith. We declare that, Lord, and we're thankful that you have sealed that truth to our hearts. And I pray that is true for each person who is here, that, that they have had that truth sealed to their hearts, that they indeed know Christ as Lord. He has changed their lives. He has forgiven their sin. He has put them on the path to heaven. Now, Father, as we look into your word, I pray that your spirit will help us to understand it and help us to see the truths that are contained in it. And, Father, that you will, by your spirit, work through your word to accomplish its purposes today. In Christ's name, amen. All right, Titus chapter 1 is where we are. Titus chapter 1, I'm going to finish a message today that began last week. I'm going to read our text for us, beginning in verse 10 as we begin. For there are many rebellious men empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. We find ourselves this morning in the midst of examining Four sobering realities that biblical elders must understand regarding false teachers in order to adequately protect and equip their people. These realities are further explanation that Paul gives Titus as to why qualified elders must be able to teach, why they must be able to exhort and in sound doctrine as well as being able to, to refute those who contradict. The church is to be salt and light in the world, and in order to do that, they must adorn the doctrine of God. This happens when God's people are properly equipped in sound doctrine, and when they are protected from false ideology of the world and of the devil, which is propagated by false teachers in the church. We ended last time by looking at some false teachers in our day who fit the mold of what Paul is warning Titus to look out for in our text. This morning, as we get back into the second half of this text, I want to begin by, by describing the, 
the seven common types of false teachers in the world today. I believe this will be a helpful overview, and it will, it will kind of put flesh on the, the skeleton, so to speak, of the realities that Paul is giving us in this text. Tim Challies, he's a, he's a wonderful writer and blogger. I'm sure many of you are familiar with him. He's written a very helpful article in which he, he briefly describes these various false teachers in the church. So I'm indebted to him for this kind of introductory portion of my sermon, just to, to lay these seven false teachers in front of you. The first type of false teacher is the heretic. Challies writes this. He says, the heretic is the most common, is the most prominent and perhaps the most dangerous of the false teachers. The heretic is the, is the person who teaches what blatantly contradicts an essential teaching of the Christian faith. He is a gregarious figure, a natural leader teaching just enough truth to mask his deadly error. Yet in denying the faith and celebrating what is false, he leads his followers from the safety of orthodoxy to the peril of heresy. This would be a guy like, guy I named last week, like T.D. Jakes. T.D. Jakes believes in a, in a false understanding of the Trinity, that each person of the Trinity is actually a mode um, who functions differently, but not a three-in-one triune God that the Bible proclaims. The second type of false teacher would be a charlatan. Challies describes the charlatan this way. He says, the charlatan is the person who uses Christianity as a means for personal enrichment. The charlatan is only interested in the Christian faith to the extent that it can fill his wallet. He uses leadership position to benefit from others' wealth. The charlatan has appeared in many forms, always seeking prominence in the church so that he can live in extravagance. This describes the, the prosperity teachers of today, uh, the Benny Hens and guys like that who, who extort the truth for the purpose of becoming excessively wealthy. The third type is, is the prophet. Challies says the prophet claims to be gifted by God to speak fresh revelation outside of Scripture. That is, new authoritative words of prediction, teaching, rebuke, or encouragement. In reality, though, he is commissioned and empowered by Satan for the purpose of misleading and disrupting Christ's church. Now, when you think about the prophet, the key with this false teacher is the declaration that they have received new revelation from God outside of the Scriptures. Okay? So, we proclaim, those of us who teach the Word of God on a regular basis are proclaiming the truth that is contained in these 66 books of the Bible. The prophet that Challies is describing here, that he is claiming is a false teacher, is one who says he receives fresh revelation from God, that he is the direct source of revelation from God that he then communicates to others. The fourth type of false teacher is the abuser. Challies writes this concerning the abuser. He says, the abuser uses his position of leadership to take advantage of other people. 
Usually he takes advantage of them to feed his sexual lust, though he may also desire power. The abuser claims that that he is tending souls, but his true interest is ravishing bodies. He works his way into women's lives, confidence, homes, and beds. When he is not pursuing illicit sexual pleasure, he may be domineering people to gain power, abusing them on his path to prominence. He does this in the name of ministry, with the claim of God's anointing. He unapologetically uses and abuses others to feed his lusts. And sadly, we are hearing of this type more and more in the church today. The fifth type of false teacher that I think is helpful to be aware of is the divider. The divider, Chalice states that the divider uses false doctrine to disrupt or destroy a church. He gleefully divides brother from brother and sister from sister. The divider is devoid of the Holy Spirit whose first fruit is love and whose special work is holding believers together in the bond of peace. We know that from Ephesians chapter 4. This false teacher brings strife, not love. He generates factions, not unity. He desires discord, not harmony. Congregations and denominations have often been splintered by the divider as he he promulgates his lies. He sometimes makes a minor doctrine into the mark of Christian maturity, causing causing factions to, to arise within the body. He may slyly introduce unbiblical doctrines, or he may undermine the ordained leadership. And he does it all for the perverse satisfaction that comes with destruction. I actually had to deal with this type of false teacher, the divider in my previous ministry. These people are very difficult. And actually, when we get into the third chapter of Titus, We're going to see that there's a special form of church discipline that Paul instructs Titus in how to deal with people who are dividers. The sixth type of false teacher is the tickler. This is not the Elmo tickler situation, if you are aware of that. That's a weird thing, by the way. Challies says, the tickler is the false teacher who cares nothing for what God wants and everything for what men want. He is the man-pleaser rather than the God-pleaser. The tickler craves popularity and praise from the world. To maintain his followers' respect, he preaches only the parts of the Bible that they deem acceptable. Therefore, he speaks much of happiness, but little of sin. Much of heaven, but nothing of hell. He gives them only what they want to hear. He preaches a partial gospel, which is no gospel at all, Chally says. And the most prominent tickler of our day would certainly be Joel Osteen, who resides down in Texas. By the way, his wife is a better preacher than he is, I think. I stole that from Steve Lawson. The seventh type of of, of false teacher is the speculator. The speculator, Charlie's writes this, says the speculator is the one obsessed with novelty, originality, or speculation. 
Teaching focused on speculation displaces the sure and steady doctrine of Scripture. The speculator tosses aside the bulk of of the Bible's content and the weight of the Bible's emphasis in order to obsess about matters that are trivial or novel. He grows weary of the old truths. And he pursues respectability through originality. I think a good example of, of this kind of false teacher is the end times guesser. Right? You guys know who the end times guesser is. There's a lot of them. Jesus is going to come back on this date. And Jesus doesn't come back on that date. So the next day they say Jesus is going to come back on this date or this date or this date. Jesus has made clear that the only one who knows he's going to return is his father who is in heaven. This person constantly speculates and, and wants to be original and, and how they come up with new things. And it's not a good situation. The false teachers. I know that was a little bit of a detour, but I think it gives us a, a helpful applicational perspective as we get back into our text this morning. So kind of looking at this text, setting it up with with some of the application that comes when we, when we talk about false teachers. That these are the types of guys that, that Paul is warning Titus about in our text. If you go back to last week, we examined the first two sobering realities. And the first thing that we looked at was, was the dilemma which false teachers pose. And we, we saw that in verses 10 and 11. We saw that these men are, are rebellious, they're self-important, and they're deceptive. We saw that their teaching destroys the lives of, of whole families. That's what that word upsets mean there in verse 11. They are con artists. They are charlatans, as it says there in verse 11. Because they are doing this, they are teaching what they should not teach for the sake of sordid, sordid gain. They are doing this to line their own pockets. It's the dilemma in which the false teachers pose. Secondly, we, see the, we saw the danger which the false teachers are. And we saw that in verses 12 and the first part of verse 13. First of all, we, we saw that they are compared to lying, evil, lazy pagans. That's how Paul describes these men to Titus. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't coat them in some sort of you know, sugary coat. But he... But he tells it like it is, that these are these types of men. They're just like the pagan people that you are there to minister to on this island. And these pagan people, by the way, he says, are known throughout the world for how pagan they are. They corrupt the church. And by corrupting the church, they destroy the church's witness to the world, keeping them from being salt and light. And we we see that that's where that danger Danger expands to, right? They're not just a danger to themselves in the fact that they are self-deceived and they are on their way to hell. They're not just a danger to the congregations they're a part of, propagating the false teaching to those people, but they're a danger to the world because as they teach the church in a false way, that message of the gospel gets skewed and watered down and messed up, and so the church loses its ability to then be salt and light to the world. 
And it keeps the world from the Christian witness that it so desperately needs. Well, this then leads us to our text again this morning, to the, to the third sobering reality that we find concerning false teachers, and that is this. It is the denouncement which false teachers demand. The denouncement which false teachers demand. As a result of exposing the danger that false teachers are, Paul instructs Timothy regarding what his response is to be to these individuals. Look there at the middle of verse 13. He says, for this reason, the reason that he has just given, the dangers that he has just spoken of, he says, for this reason, reprove them severely. Reprove them severely. The word reprove literally means to cut with a knife or an axe. Biblical elders are to use the word of God to convince the false teachers of their error and to correct them. And this is to be done sharply or severely, Paul says. This word means vigorously or relentlessly. Friends, this is is the dog barking and biting, not the puppy giving his puppy eyes look. This is to be a pointed conversation that cannot be put on the back burner. When, When false teaching comes to light, it cannot be swept under the rug. Though this reproving must be direct and it must be sharp, I want you to notice the purpose that Paul gives for reproving these people. It says there in verse 13, so that they may be sound in the faith. This reproval is to be first and foremost remedial. That is to say that it is to seek to correct them for the purpose of bringing them to true saving faith. Take a moment and reflect on the heart of God right here. Even the most vile of human beings who who is seeking to lead astray others from the truth that God still has a heart that desires them to come to repentance. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.4, he says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Our God is a saving God. That, that is the heart of our God. Yes, he hates sin. Yes, he is a judge. And yes, he will one day judge sin eternally. I should say sinners eternally. He's judged sin at the cross. But our God is a saving God. You're sitting here this morning, if you're in Christ, because of that reality that God is a saving God. Because though you may not be like one of these false teachers who has purposefully propagated false teaching to lead others astray and destroy their lives. You too were dead in your sins. You too were hostile to God and engaged in evil deeds, Colossians 1 says. But God in his kindness, in his grace, set his love upon you. 
reached down to you, affected your life, brought you to the point where you saw your need for him. And he gave you a new heart and took out your heart of stone and you responded to the gospel. And he saved you. That is because our God's heart is a heart that desires people to be saved. I love that here. And it feels a bit unexpected. It almost feels a bit out of place. Because Paul is going after false teachers, there's no doubt. And he should. But he just reminds us that the, the first purpose, the biblical elders are to reprove false teachers is that by some sovereign chance, God might save them through that rebuke. I love that. This reproval can be likened to the job of a surgeon. All right, cutting a person open, this term reproval, cutting a person open, but, but, but for the purpose of this person getting healed. If you have something inside of you that is killing you, it must come out. Like when, when a person's appendix fails or erupts or explodes, whatever in the world happens in the body, it sounds awful. I hope I, hope I never have to deal with it. But many of you may have, and you, have, you know people who have. If they don't get that appendix that's leaking all of that disgusting poison out into your body, out of your body, you will die. The surgeon has to go in, and now they do it, I guess, very simply. I just don't understand the medical world at all. But be able to go and suck that baby out of there without a big incision is amazing. And they get that, they get that thing out. That's what has to happen. That's, that's this idea of reproval in its first sense here is, is, is getting that false teaching out for the purpose of, of healing, for the purpose of that, possibly that false teacher coming to faith, but certainly for the purpose of of the church. And we see that because not only are false teachers to be reproved for the purpose of remedy, they are also to be repudiated for the purpose of fidelity. They are to be repudiated for the purpose of fidelity. And you see that in verse 14, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. You see, their false teachings and their pagan lifestyles are to be exposed and denounced because those who are apostate will seek to turn others away from the truth. These false teachers must be repudiated for the sake of the truth. This is where we see that their false teaching was connected with religious ritualism and Jewish legalism. You see, false teachers were preaching a different gospel by adding requirements to it and, and by changing it to be works and, and performance-based. As you look at verse 14, you see that phrase there at the end of the verse where it says, who turn away, who turn them away, turn away from the truth, is the phrase. That phrase indicates that these false teachers, at one point in their lives, had, had definitely been exposed to the truth and possibly even embraced it in some surface way. But now they had turned away from it. And they were, they were seeking to take others down with them, is the idea. Paul says that these men must be denounced for the sake of the truth 
And for the believers who had embraced the truth, and for the believers who were in their hearing, who were listening to them. These people must be protected. They must be guarded. False teachers demand. They demand denunciation. The final sobering reality that we find in our text concerning false teachers is this. It's in verses 15 and 16, and it is the defilement in which false teachers persist. The defilement in which false teachers persist. As Paul goes on to describe the defiled lifestyles of the false teachers, he begins at the beginning of verse 15 by making a pointed theological contrast. Look at verse 15. He says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. To the pure, all things are pure. Paul here is speaking of the truth of of inward gospel transformation. That is this, that inward purity, because of gospel transformation in the life of a person, produces pure living. The only way that a person truly begins to live a pure life, truly begins to live in a way that pleases God, to walk in integrity, is because God of the, the, the God of the Bible has, has reached down and has, has given them this inward purity by, by removing their heart of flesh and get, by removing their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. There's been an inward transformation. This is the work of regeneration. This is new life that has been produced. This is, this is the, the, the rising the dead person from the grave. As Ephesians 2.1 says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. This is, this is God making a dead person alive. And when that happens, a person's life is transformed. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that, that There is therefore now, or not, that's the wrong verse. It says that the old is gone and the new has come. You are a new creation in Christ. Inward purity, because of gospel transformation, produces pure living. So now that you have this inward purity that has been granted to you by God, you've had your heart fixed. You've had a new heart placed in you. You've had your sins washed away, your sins forgiven. Your life now looks different. Your life now begins to change, and we call that the process of sanctification. Now, day in and day out, now that you have been inwardly transformed by the gospel of grace, you begin to become more like Jesus Christ. And we know that the Bible talks about sanctification as a process because that's exactly what it is. It ebbs and flows. For some people it's slower, for other people it's quicker. But the reality is, the reality that Paul is is stating at the beginning of this contrast in verse 15 is that that inward purity or outward purity is, is only affected by inward purity. When a mind and a heart have been transformed 
to love the things that God loves and to, to hate the things that God hates, that life is going to begin to reflect holiness. You're going to see things begin to change. Again, it may be slow, and, and at first you may be wondering what in the world's going on. That's the work of the Spirit in the heart and life of a person who's been transformed by the gospel. Look at verse 15. This is the, the beginning of the contrast. And Paul says, but, this is the, the contrast, which is the pa, to Paul's point in, in this text, is to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, he says. That is to say that outward conformity that is not produced by inward transformation is defiled. It is not pure. And Paul's point in, in saying this is to explain that the Jewish ceremonial purity combined with pagan living is defiled and unbelieving. That's the point that he's making. Well, why is this the case? Look at the end of verse 15. As he says, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. That is to say that they are unregenerate. They are unregenerate. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Their inner man, these, these false teachers, their, their inner man is defiled by their error and their sin. Therefore, they cannot live a holy life. That's what Paul is saying. Adhering to religious practices and duties does not and cannot produce a pure, transformed life. Listen, false teachers live pagan lives, whether it's under the surface where people can't really see it or out in the open. They live pagan lives because of one reason. They are pagans. They are unregenerate. And friends, if you are here this morning and your life is characterized like the life of a pagan, whether it's under the surface or out in the open, being ungodly, immoral, or hypocritical, the most likely reason for that is because you have never been transformed inwardly by the gospel. The most likely reason for that is because you are a pagan. In other words, you are not a Christian. An unregenerate heart produces unregenerate fruit. And if that is you here today, I plead with you. Repent and come to Christ. Today is the only one who can transform your heart to be pure by His Spirit. And again, more than likely in this setting, many of you have grown up in this church or a church like this church. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you know in your heart, you know your life is characterized by that which characterizes these pagans, this, this immoral, debased lifestyle, then it probably is something that very few people know about, maybe only you. My prayer for you is that you will, the Spirit of God will reveal to you your hypocrisy. 
the life that you've been putting on display for others to see that just isn't real. And that he will bring you to genuine repentance. And he will transform you inwardly so that your life is no longer conformed by this outward fake facade. It's no longer identified as that, but now your life is identified as a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. As you look at the text, not only were these false teachers persistent in their defiled religious ritualism, coupled with pagan living, but they were also persistent in professing to know God while living a pagan lifestyle. Look at verse 16. It says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. To profess to know God is to publicly acknowledge God with their mouths. It is to profess allegiance to God. You see, a lot of these things that the the false teachers were saying, that they were teaching, they they were cloaked in, in biblical language. Part of their tactic to deceive is to get people to think that they are talking about the same spiritual things, the same God, the same Jesus, the, the same gospel. They claim to know God. They claim to have a relationship with God. Listen, many in the church live according to this same easy, believe, easy believism theology. Many people think that because they have professed Christ with their mouth, that they are genuinely saved. When their life looks nothing like what a Christian life is depicted to look at in the is depicted to look like in the Bible. Easy believism says I can I can raise my hand, I can walk an aisle. I can sign a card saying that I believe the gospel and then I can walk out the doors and I can live however I want because I have now assured myself through that ritual that I am a Christian. Sadly, there are churches all around us this morning that are, if not dabbling in that theology, propagating that false theology. And perhaps you have dabbled in that yourself. You think because you were raised your hand when you were little in a little environment that somebody asked you to raise your hand if you wanted to become a Christian or you think because you've you've been baptized or you think because you attend church And your parents are Christians. You think all of those things, that you are a Christian. Friends, the truth is that is not what makes you a Christian. You are nothing more than these guys. You are are just like them, that they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. claim to know God, they claim to have a relationship with God, but by their deeds they deny Him. This is the perfect definition of a hypocrite. 
saying one thing, but, but doing another thing. Their actions, Paul says, are the opposite of their profession. Their lifestyle actually shows that they have no true knowledge of God. They might have a head knowledge of God. They might be able to give answers. They might be able to answer any Sunday school question that you throw at them. They might be able to win Bible trivia baseball. Have you ever played that? You still love that. I'm glad we don't play it anymore. You used to be able to, they could do that. But their lifestyle shows that they have no true knowledge of God. This verse goes on to explain the kind of deeds they do which deny God. First of all, it says in verse 16 that they are detestable. Detestable. This, <coughs> excuse me, this word occurs only here in the New Testament. And, and it has the idea of, of acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent. God hates unbalanced scales. We know that from the book of Proverbs. He is perfectly just. Seeking to to not be detestable in their religious ritualism, which is what they wanted to do, and all the ceremonial cleansings and all of those things, the irony was that they were detestable in their moral purity. They professed have a relationship with God, but they had no true knowledge of God. Second, they're disobedient. They're disobedient. They professed to know and love the God of the Word, but they disobeyed His commands. They lived in constant disobedience to the revealed will of God, according to the pattern of of this world. They were disobedient. And it was, it was not disobedience in the sense that, that a person struggles with sin and there is a clear pattern of repentance in his or her heart because that's everybody who's in Christ battling with sin on a daily basis. But this disobedience that's being spoken of is a, a persistent, constant disobedience that characterizes their life. That they totally disregard what God has commanded in in His Word. Third, they are worthless for any good deed, it says. Yarbrough states in his commentary on this passage that this word worthless, seven out of eight times in the New Testament, is used by Paul to refer to morally or spiritually deficient persons or their twisted mental faculties. In other words, they are unqualified. It's interesting in this text where we've seen the blueprint for biblical leadership in those first nine verses. Now at the end of this section of his letter to Titus, he basically says these guys that are infiltrating the church, these guys who are propagating false teaching and error within the church, that they are the exact opposite of the qualified elders that are described in verses 6 through 9. 
This word, is the, this word worthless is the idea that they are unfit for the task. All of their righteous deeds were as dirty rags before God. They were persistent in their defilement. And this religious ritualism coupled with this pagan living, this this characterized these, these opponents that Titus was facing on this island of Crete. This is who they were. Paul wanted to to make it clear to Titus who these people were who were opposing him and who were going to oppose him. And he tells them that that these teachers are dangerous, that they destroy lives with their erroneous teaching and preying on the vulnerable. That they demand to be denounced in their falsehood and that they persist in their defilement because they are unregenerate. These men are to be identified by biblical elders and rebuked so that the flock of God can be protected and continue to be equipped to be salt and light in the dark world around them. That's his point. And as we close our time together this morning, as we finish up chapter 1 of the book of Titus, let me remind you that we are not exempt from being tempted to live like the false teachers there in Crete. We're not, we're not exempt from this. We're not exempt from being tempted to, to say one thing and do another thing. Oh, we're not exempt from being tempted to live immoral and unholy lives at times. Our flesh tempts us. The world around us tempts us. And, and the devil tempts us. Friends, you need to be on guard against error in your life. Whether that is internal error or whether that is external error, you need to be committed to living a repentant life. We talk about this time and time again in here. And when you come to Christ, that's when you initially repent. You initially turn from your sin. You turn from yourself and you turn from the world and you turn to Christ. But then your life as a Christian is then to be, to be patterned by a lifestyle of repentance. Day in, day out, seeing the sin that you deal with, knowing the sinful condition of your heart, knowing your flesh, and fighting against it, and confessing your sin, and repenting. This, this is what Jesus said to Peter in, in John 13 in the upper room, isn't it? When he goes to, to wash their feet, and Peter says, no, no, I'm not washing my feet. He, he knew what that meant, that Jesus was lowering himself to the status of a slave. No, Jesus, you're no slave. Don't do that. He, he, had, a, he had a moral purpose in wanting to say that. And Jesus says, listen, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. You have no part with me. So, of course, Peter, in his way that he did things, and okay, well, not just my feet, but my whole body. I want to have a part with you, Jesus. 
I want to be a part of you. And Jesus says, no, Peter, listen. Everyone in here has been washed, except one, which was Judas, which he says. Every one of you have been washed. So you just need to have your feet washed. Explaining to us that that's the Christian life. If you are sitting here in Christ, you have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You stand justified before God. Not because of any of your merits, but because of Jesus Christ alone. The Father looks down and through the lens of his Son, he sees you as perfect. That's an amazing reality. But yes, you still live in the flesh. I still live in the flesh. We still deal with the sinful remnant of the flesh day in and day out. And we have to have our feet washed. We have to confess our sin. We have to repent on a regular basis and continue to turn from those besetting sins in our life. Never let sin fester. Never let falsehood linger. These false teachers had done that. Sin festered. Falsehood lingered, eventually proving them to be unregenerate people, and they led other people astray. Friends, you are in Christ. You must never let sin fester. Deal with it. Cut it out. Do whatever you have to do. You gouge out the eye, you cut off the hand, Jesus says. Because the longer you dabble in error, whether that is living in sin, which is contrary, which, uh, living in sin or, or filling your mind with that which is contrary to the scriptures, the more likely you are to become deceived and have to face destructive consequences because that's the end result of error. If you are genuinely in Christ, he will hold you fast. Just as Jesus told Peter again, as they were sitting around that fire after Peter had denied Jesus three times and Jesus reinstated him by saying, if you love me, go feed my sheep. He assured him then by telling Peter the kind of death he was going to die that he would never defect again. He would never truly defect Friends, we hold that truth so dear. That regardless of the, of the sin that besets us, regardless of the, of the sin battle that we are in while we're in this flesh, in this life, that if we are genuinely Christ's people, he will hold us fast. We will never fully defect. And we hold on to that and we praise him for his faithfulness in that, because if it was up to us, we would defect on a regular basis. However, embracing error, even as a Christian, can still cause destruction in this life and leave you with devastating consequences. Watched it happen over and over and over. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, to watch over his life and his doctrine. We would do well to heed that instruction. 
especially in light of these sobering realities regarding false teachers that we have studied in our text. Watch over your life. Watch over your doctrine. Don't stray. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this text, which certainly is a sobering reminder to us regarding those who are in this world directed by their father, the devil, to wreak havoc on the church at large. Father, I hope there's no one like that in this room this morning. More than likely, Father, it's it's all of us who are in Christ who have to battle with the temptation of sin and error in our lives on a daily basis, and we just ask for your grace. We ask that you would keep us connected with the truth. Help us to keep short short accounts with you, with our sin. And Father, help us hold fast to the truth that Christ indeed will complete the work in us that he has begun. Lord, we love you. We ask you to help us to be salt and light to this world. Help us to adorn the doctrine of God in our lives so that you may continue to use us to faithfully lead others to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for our time together. In Christ's name, amen.